Apparently, it was a last-minute addition to the album. He said, I heard a demo of this, and I said, I've got to do it. I changed a few words that made it work better. It ended up being the biggest song on the album, and we almost missed it. Now, the song was used in the Simpsons episode when Homer accidentally gives Maggie the song Sex Bomb for Bedtime, intended to play it for Marge for uh, Valentine's Day. So there, there you go. You've got you to gotta give it to him, though, Peter Ray. Tom Jones. Oh, look, he's, he's uh, oh. a remarkable performer. What is it? He's in his 80s now? Yeah, longevity. Yeah, he's... Yeah. Um, <laughs> the voice is strong. The, the, the ballads are always great. Yep, yep, um, they are. And, you know, some classics there over the years. Yeah, I love Green Green Grass yep, of Home. I, that's, that's right. That yeah. is my favourite. Yep. Do you know who I think's better than uh, Tom Jones? By a whisper? Engelbert Humperdinck. Well, they were cross-contemporary, weren't they? They were yeah. very. That's why yeah. I say, yeah. yeah. And I went by chance. I went to saw him, see him live uh, in Auckland. He was amazing. Yeah, just amazing. And he did something extraordinary. He said, "Well, apparently, uh, all of New Zealand knows this song better than I do." And he sat down. The house lights turned on, and the audience of two thousand sung. Ten guitars oh. to oh. him. I grew up yes. in ten guitars. Yes. I mean, right, hey, Marty. Yes. That's all my uncles yes. used yeah. to play that on the ukulele. Yeah. Two thousand people sing dun, 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 <laughs> to your tango. and he, Engelbert Humperdinck, is sitting on stage with his arms crossed, listening to us. <laughs> yeah. It was unreal. But there's another, one other person we should put into this group, Wallace. And yeah. It's our own John Rolls. Absolutely, he was same style and tone, and same era, and uh, some Absolutely. classic songs there too. I used yeah. to live around the corner from his party in Tiatatu when mm-hmm. I was the wee one. Yeah. Yeah, Very and cool. her, well, his, his mama used to live there, yeah. Well said. It's from Tiatatu. Very cool. <laughs> the panel, RNZ National, Sarah Sparks and Peter Dunn with me today. Now, an increasing number of empty nesters have been handed a rude shock when trying to sell and downsize and then hit a snag. Some of the renovations that had been done on their home were unconsented. Whoops. Or often people have forgotten about the renos, 20 years gone by, and then they find... Oh, right, they don't have the paperwork. With us is Craig Lowe, Managing Director of Lowe & Co. Realty. Kia ora, Craig. Hi, how's it going? Good. This could potentially be a terrible issue for someone who hasn't checked their code of compliance because, you know, never got round to it. It does. It happens, yeah. Um, I would would guess, uh, you know, somewhere around 5% of properties at a a stab in the dark uh, end up with a consenting issue. It's not insignificant, is it, 
No, no, um, we come, come across it quite regularly and it can throw a spanner in the works. Uh, and I think, you know, the key thing is doing the research up front before you go to market uh, and make sure you understand what you're selling. Is there an example um, that comes to your top of mind, Craig? Uh, oh, goodness me. Um, I mean, the, the, the big ones are the ones, not, not a specific example, but the big yeah. things that, that come to mind are when, you know, you cannot get any sort of certificate of acceptance from the oh. council. And then the only way to, you know, it's, you either have to just sell it, uh, you know, as is, whereas understanding that the works are unconsented. Uh, and that those are those are sort of the ones that where it really affects the value the most. Oh, that would be heartbreaking. So, so what's the process, Craig? When someone discovers they're in this situation, can they rectify it easily enough, or do they just have to sort of go with the flow? No, that's a good question. So, I think the first port of call is always uh, always legal advice. Uh, you know, um, and actually starting at the start, I think you know, as I said just then, I think the key is you know, go to them, go and do this research mm. yourself like a buyer would before you go to market because then you've got options, you know, and, 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 and you know, if you're halfway through a sale and you uncover this, it's an absolute tragedy. Right. I mean, you're yeah. going to lo- lose the sale. So okay. first and foremost, get, get a limb report up front. Yeah. Have, a look, have, a, mm. have a look through all the relevant sections and then, uh, and then go to your lawyer and get your lawyer to review that. And you can also do it in conjunction with a real estate agent as well. Oh, dear me, you might have been in the situation uh, before you can email me, the panel at rnz.co.nz. It's certainly something that you wouldn't want to find out. You're, you're putting up your house for sale. Uh, you're in a positive frame of, frame of mind, Sarah Sparks. Uh, next minute, someone asks, um, uh, how's the consenting? I, I don't know. you got your code of compliance. I just thought, it, I mean, it went well. My um, my family are involved in, in real estate, so you know, getting the limb report, I just thought it was a standard uh, pr- process. So um, it's quite surprising at the quantum of people that are caught caught out by it. But you know, always do your due diligence, especially this is like one of your biggest assets. Yeah. You know, why why would you not? And and then also too, it's got a safeguard. You know the the buyer coming in. There's a yes. purpose yeah. for it, and that's um, such a good point. <laughs> well, can you expand on that? Because hang on, Peter, expand on sure. that because we're also thinking of the the buyer as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the reality is, we, you know, we should know what we're selling, and mm. people should know what they're buying. It's the only fair, you know, way in the market. And I think mm. the culture has changed dramatically on that. I mean, it used to be, you know, and there still are people with the mindset of, oh, well, the buyer can pay for that, you know, building report, or the buyer can pay for that, uh, that limb report. But, you know, the issue is, you know, A, one of transparency, and B, yeah. actually the deal goes smoother and, and you get a better result when you find this stuff out up front and you can deal with it in a rational way. I was just going to ask, Craig, uh, sometimes, of course, the limb report doesn't contain all of the details, particularly if the house is an older one and the work was done many years ago. And I'm just wondering what, what happens in that situation? Well, I mean, we, we, you know, the best uh, solution to that is to go to archives and pull everything from archives. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and it's a great point. Uh, I, I think the reality is that, you know, usually the limb report would, would, is going to have most mm-hmm. information. And it's, it, is, it is usually enough to, to know. But, I mean, I think the, the instances that I can think of, you know, where something wasn't uh, on a limb report, there's only one I can think of, and that's where a letter of a notice to fix was not included in a limb report, and we found it in archives, but it's very rare. Right. Oh, that's, um, that's but, that, but that is the answer. Mm. Go to archives and pull everything and get your look, you know, in conjunction with your lawyer and your agent, go through, go through all of that as well. Okay. Um, 
I guess one uh, solution could be, Craig, uh, as a seller, you could just disclose it and leave it at that? Yes, and that's the, and that's the, the beautiful thing about the way all this works is that if you're up front with people at the start, then they trust the process, they just factor it in, and then that, you know, everything tends to go smoother from there. Um, it is worth pointing out, however, that an outstanding consent can cause issues with both finance and insurance. And so it may limit your market and affect your price, even if you disclose it. But that's that's certainly way more preferable than someone finding out halfway through and it being a surprise. Yeah, and of course, uh, uh, implicit in all this, Craig, is that the standard for consents has just changed, hasn't it? And it's got higher and higher. So you'll be looking at a home, actually, relatively re- a renovation that's relatively recent, and still you'll need to check it. That's right, absolutely. And, 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 you know, just to go back to that original question around what to do, I mean, you can get, you know, if, if it does meet an, uh, the, the code and the, the council is, can, can determine that, then they can give you a certificate of acceptance. So there are options uh, from the council, but they can take time, which not everyone has mm. when they're selling a house. So earlier you get on to checking the stuff, the better. Someone says here, um, go see the neighbours. They'll tell you everything the owner and agent might forget. (laughs) 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 Who knows what you might find out. There you go, Craig. There's some advice for your company. Uh, Just (laughs) check with the neighbours. Christina says you should order the property file along with the limb from the council, which will provide more detail. Is that right, Craig? Absolutely. Yeah, the limb, well, the, there's a property information memorandum, which is a shorter version of a limb, and then there's a, the limb, the land information memorandum, is the bigger version. So, should, you know, typically a, a limb should be what you need uh, to, to have everything. People are quite interested in this, by the way. Just, Craig, uh, remind us, where are those archives? Uh, the Wellington City Council. Yep, go to the City Council and you can get them. All right, very good. That's Craig yep. Lowe, Managing Director of Low and Co Realty. You haven't been in this situation before. Peter, you'd, you'd be a reno man, wouldn't you? No, but I've, I've been in a situation of looking at properties where there have been renos oh. that have not been either consented at all or properly consented and finding out when it's almost too late, uh, which raises a whole lot of issues, which um, you know, Craig sort of alluded to about the role of the real estate agent and, and, and the lawyers in terms of even discovering this sort of stuff. Yep. Yep. Happened to us when we put our house on the market after 26 years, four outstanding codes of compliance took us a year mm. to get it all consented. We had 20 different council inspectors, everyone found something different wrong on top of the outstanding codes of compliance. This is something else that happens as you need to be up to date with the present code of compliance. Not was okay 26 years ago. Ended up taking the house off the market and we sold it three years later. And did you have to do all the things to make make it compliant in that time? Well, I don't know. This is not me. I'm talking about the... Uh, oh, so someone, who, someone right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, someone who wrote in. Yeah. Goodness gracious yeah. me. Thank you. Uh, the panel, RNZ National, we are with Sarah Sparks and Peter Dunn uh, this afternoon. A lot of response on that. Mark says, we sold a house in Auckland. The council early records had been destroyed in a fire, which meant the house bill in 1960 mm. wasn't consented. Oh, my goodness gracious me. What an extraordinary thing. To this, we have looked at this issue not long back. Let's come back to it. What if your elderly mum or dad or relative was languishing in a home? You'd be absolutely right to be concerned, if not worried, senseless. And if you are trying to get a parent into a home, equally an issue. Why? Because rest homes with nursing shortages have stopped 
admissions. And now the country's first aged care commissioner is sending a warning. Better pay for nurses and aged care urgently needed. So to discuss, we have Chief Executive of the New Zealand Aged Care Association, Simon Wallace. Kia ora, Simon. Kia ora, Wallace. We have talked about this before, but uh, it's yes. an issue that resonates strongly with Kiwis. A lot of people are affected by this. And to that first point, you would be worried, senseless, wouldn't you, if you had a parent trying to get into a home? You'd be seeing this? Absolutely, Wallace. And I think this is the reality of what's happening in our care homes with the shortage of 1,200 nurses. It means that we've got, unfortunately, a lot of uh, older people um, held up in public hospitals, taking up a bed in a public hospital that um, we don't want them to be taking up. Uh, but also uh, older New Zealanders at, at home who've been assessed as requiring care, you know, rest home care, and that's putting a lot of stress on on partners and, mm. and, and family carers. So that's how it's being felt on the ground. Aged care nurses are generally paid around ten to fifteen thousand dollars less annually than a hospital nurse. Does that make it more difficult to recruit? Yes, it does, and that's about to get a whole lot worse. Um, we've got how a, so? We've got a well, we've got a pay equity settlement on the table between the government and uh, nurses working in public hospitals, and that that will take the difference to between twenty and thirty thousand annually. So, you know, we're not saying those nurses in public hospitals are any less deserving. We're just saying our nurses are equally deserving, and there's there's got to be a level playing field around this, um, and the government's got to be able to address it. Uh, so we can keep nurses in our sector. What's your take on this, Sarah? Yeah, I agree, because I look at it and I think, you know, how are we valuing our kaumatua in terms of remuneration of the workforce? Um, it should be equal. Um, and, you know, un- unfortunately it's not. And there's a it, it's balancing the, the immediate operational demands of the of this crisis situation with what's happening long term coming down the pike because I was jumped on stats and saw how many of our older population you know it's growing it's exponential so we've got 800,000 plus 65 year olds it's only going to get worse so we need to actually invest in value in the care of our kaumatua. And Sarah, I think that's when we look at the over 85s, because the average age of entry into one of our care homes is over, over 85, or is 85. And in 20 years' time, we're going to have nearly a quarter of a million people in that mm. over 85 cohort. So that's mm. three times as many people in the over 85 age group as well. So I think that just um, demonstrates the challenge that we've got here. Peter, Peter, jump in. You yes. might have been, uh, uh, you might have had a personal uh, situation here because there are many. I mean, many of my uh, yeah. friends, colleagues, you know, do try and get their um, loved ones, their whānau, their parents into mm. a home. Simon, so, so I just was wondering. On the face of it, pay equity makes good sense. It's a no-brainer. But obviously, the industry would have to pay that additional twenty to thirty thousand, which then is reflected in the charges back to the the residents and the families. And I'm just wondering how you see a way through that conundrum, because mm. the risk then is becomes aged care becomes too expensive for people to afford. Well, I think when you look at it, that that and I, and I guess this is around the whole funding issue is that. Um, aged care is, a, is a pu- largely a public-funded sector. It's, it's delivered by private operators. 
but it is uh, largely uh, largely funded by the government. And the, the funding is capped, and it is such that... Um, you know, we can only pay our nurses a certain amount. Okay, um, can I address that, it a bit that, more, um, Simon? Yeah, because yeah. because it's a bit complicated, isn't it? I know there are yeah, uh, large yeah, companies, there yeah. are small family-owned facilities mm. too, um, yeah. charitable. Uh, but Minister Little says, look, extra funding shouldn't line the pockets of the large corporates who just use it to pay an extra dividend to their shareholders. What would you say? Well, I would say thank goodness for the big players that we have in the sector because without them we'd be in, in a lot of trouble. Those big players, those ones that have the larger retirement villages are cross-subsidising their, their aged care facilities from the returns on their, on their property. But they are the only ones that are building new beds in the sector. Um, they are the only ones that are putting the extra beds into the sector for the for the growing ageing population because we have a system that, that, that has had systemic underfunding. But Simon, um, if... But if not repu- yeah, yeah, sorry, Peter. I was, Peter? Just, I was just going to say, if, um, as you said before, the nursing positions are publicly funded and the Minister's expressed concern about, uh, to put it bluntly, profiteering if any in- increased funding goes in, what a sure... You know, I would have thought that if, if, you're, if those positions are publicly funded, it sh- the, the, the big companies shouldn't be taking any of this money. It shouldn't be coming their way at all. It goes straight into the pockets of the, of the nursing force. So what, where's the problem? Well, it, it, well, I think what you're seeing, uh, Peter, with the large operators in the sector uh, who represent around about 30%, 30% of the 40,000 beds in the sector uh, uh, is that they are matching the salaries that are paid by uh, the public hospital system. Mm. So... You know, if they can afford to to pay their nurses uh, at parity with those in the public hospital system, they are, and and many of them are doing that because they need to do that to retain staff. Right, and you so support any, and you support uh, page you you support parity between aged care nurses and hospital nurses, Simon. Uh, absolutely, because in, in aged care we are in, we are a nursing led uh, workforce. We don't have specialists on hand. We don't have our GPs on hand in our facilities. We rely on the expertise of our of our specialist nursing workforce, um, right. who who are doing uh, a sterling job, Very and they good. should be paid no less than those in, in public hospitals. Kia ora, Simon. Uh, good to have you on the program. That's uh, Simon Wallace, there, uh, the chief executive of the uh, New Zealand Aged Care Association. He believes parity needs to happen. Uh, yes, one thousand two hundred nurses short. That's a big number, and Sarah, certainly top of mind if you are putting your mum into a rest home or dad. I I personally wouldn't. I mean, I'd look after them at home for as long as possible. But, you know, it's clear that also with the workforce um, being depleted in this sector, that there needs to be... Uh, some improvements in the immigration policy, mm. you know, um, it's it's clear that that has had its impact as well. Eight to five, the panel RNZ National. Now, just have a listen to this clip by the great Morgan Freeman. I am not Morgan Freeman, and what you see is not real. Well, at least in contemporary terms, it is not. What if I were to tell you that I am not even a human being? Would you believe me? 
It is a freaky clip, quite chilling. It's not Morgan Freeman, believe it or not. Already actor Bruce Willis has had his deep fake appear in a Russian commercial, reportedly sold rights to his face to a deep fake company, um, apparently, that's not true. His rubbish agent rubbish those reports, but deep fake tech and AI is developing at such a rate. Some companies are confident digital versions of actors will be appearing on screen. It has chilling ramifications politically in a world of misinformation. With us is Guerrilla Tech chief executive and tech commentator Paul Spain. Kia ora, Paul. Kia ora. I was amazed by that Morgan Freeman clip and that voice. Look, yeah, we've we've had some of this technology available over a number of years, and of course we're used to incredible special effects coming out of Hollywood, but what's happened is it's transitioned from being, you know, a technology that costs millions and millions of dollars to draw on um, to something that's becoming, you know, almost accessible to, you know, to, to anybody. Um, and and um, that's just going to keep improving. So, yeah, it's going to create some uh, some challenges as well as there probably being some upsides for a few folks. Well, that, well, that's right. I can think of the upsides in terms of getting actors to do, you know, if they might not be available. But the, the, the downsides are quite chilling and incredibly uh, well displayed by an extraordinary series uh, on demand now. It's called The Capture, which talks about the political ramifications of deepfakers used Mm. for politics. Um, What of that, Paul? Yeah, look, I think um, we we are going to see this sort of thing, you know, p- probably happen. Um, hopefully, not sort of routinely. Mm. And you know, we, you know, we already have you know media who who in the old days would try and get a number of sources to verify a story before publishing. And you know, these days there've been numerous situations of you know, completely made up stories getting picked up by media, you know, or, or just sort of one loose source and and then it gets published as you know, as fact. And look, exactly the same sort of thing can happen with audio and, and with video today where it has been entirely fake. You know, as per your Morgan uh, you know, Freeman example, I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning, the quality of it. Actually, let's just have, before we go to Peter, let's have one, one more listen to the not Morgan Freeman. Nope. We're not going to get there. Um, Peter, what do you think? Well, I think this has got some really scary ramifications. Um, You know, you look at some of the more secretive regimes around the world where you wonder whether their leaders are still alive. Well, this technology, they could go on forever, years after they've died. Um, And I think that's got some implications. I think it's got implications for uh, politicians who might find it difficult to be in several places at once. There's a way here they could do that. Uh, And you just go through the list and you just start to think, um, where does personal? Um, my question is, where does personal copyright in, in this? You know, can I, as an individual, protect my identity and my voice and my image, or is this something that can be uh, up for grabs by whoever wants it? Well, before we go to Paul, let's have one more listen to that extraordinary not Morgan Freeman clip. I am not Morgan Freeman, and what you see is not real. Well, at least in contemporary terms, it is not. What if I were to tell you that I am not even a human being? Would you believe me? Who owns the copyright to you, Paul? 
Well, look, you know, this obviously should be with the individual, but as we've seen in some of these ads that have come up on Facebook and varying other platforms over the last few years, you know, quite often somebody who's well-known will find their face being the voice of, you know, whatever whatever mm. new new product. Um, or the face of it. And look, with this sort of technology, um, we could have you, Wallace Chapman, and, endorsing uh, something that, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're, you wouldn't ever uh, personally endorse. But well, this it wouldn't is be the hacky sort sex. of possibility with the technology, right? What about uh, you, Sarah? You're, you're at home, you're having a coffee, and you turn on the radio and you hear you saying something that you never heard, you never said. Well, you know, it just speaks to me about the law and intellectual property and the balance of, of power and that no one has the right to take someone else's image without... They're taking their mana, mm. you know? And so there has, there has to be uh, regulations around that um, because that's, you know, you're, you're essentially taking their mana. Mm. So it is... It then obviously needs to be, to catch up with technology, there needs to be a, a lot of accelerated legal work if this is Absolutely. going to be the law. And also mm. there's AI and art. Mm. That's the next big debate around art that's being misappropriated using AI technology. You know, how do the artists feel? Again, that's yeah. taking the mana from their work. And of course, let's just uh, end the show on a bit of an upside there, Paul. There's not, there's not all downsides. You know, you can get um, the, the 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 voice of uh, Darth Vader. He can keep going into eternity. <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, uh, James Tom L. Jones, Jones he's, he's uh, you know, re- reached, reached the end of his time wanting to uh, play Darth Vader, and the technology's going to fill in the gaps. Absolutely. Sex bomb in 50 years' time by <laughs> Tom Jones, the the AI. Anyway, Paul Cure for your time, and uh, Sarah Sparks, Peter Duns, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thank you. Loved it. Yeah, well, uh, I'm Wallace Chapman, back tomorrow, 3.45. Checkpoint with Lisa Oldnick.